Do you want to know more about vampires, werewolves, zombies, and man-made monsters? Would you like to know more about the classic Universal Monster movies responsible for creating the entire horror genre? Then listen to our podcast, Let's Talk Monsters. Where we discuss everything monsters. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. From the Apostrophe Podcast Network. Previously on Booby Trap. So he just called you back out of the blue the next day, like he just wanted to set the record straight. Yeah, yeah. And that's when he really started getting nervous because I knew that he had tried to incriminate me. He, like, basically didn't want the burden on his shoulders alone. And Bob just felt like, hey, this is a burden you should be carrying, Mike, not me. He always claimed that he set the gun up in such a way where it wasn't lethal. You can just imagine that if these kids see this gun and it's aimed at the door, what do they do? They change the alignment of the gun, but by doing so, they're actually making it lethal. So did Chuck ever stop molesting boys? Chuck never changed his approach, and that's ultimately what did him in. tragic and bizarre events of the previous four years behind him. Things were changing, and Mike was preparing for a new chapter in his life. The mystery of a future unknown was upon him, just as it would be for any young person on the cusp of adulthood, looking to create a life for themselves. And for most of us, this would indicate the end of our age of innocence. But for Mike, that milestone had come to pass a long time ago. What would become of Tony Simmons? And did Chuck ever stop committing crimes against children? Stay tuned. Welcome to Season 1. Of the Miami Chronicles Booby Trap, Episode 8. So you were telling me before that at that time you thought you would never leave Miami. Right. So in my little neighborhood, you know, like I've said before, you know, our house was kind of ground zero. And, you know, at some point someone was even joking and saying that, like, the last person to leave this neighborhood is going to be Mike. Because I always gave off this vibe of, like, being very loyal 
to my area. You know, I was very proud to be where I was from. Like a lot of my friends kind of just shit on, you know, the suburbs and South Florida and Miami and stuff. And I was always kind of proud to be from that part of the country and just sort of like we had our own vibe and we had our own style and stuff like that. And so, you know, my friends knew that about me. Mm -hmm. And so I can't remember which friend of mine it was, but at one point it might have been my friend Javier, but uh, he was sort of had this running joke that like, you know, they're going to build a statue of you in like the square somewhere. And it's going to be like, you know, <laughs> the only guy who like stayed in the neighborhood like his whole life or something. You, you know? traitor, you left. Yeah. Man, there goes your legacy. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So what made you decide to leave finally? Um, I kind of decided somewhat abruptly. I mean, it wasn't something that I had been thinking about for a really long time. It just sort of came to me, you know, in this fall of 1982, that if I was ever going to make it in the music business, that I needed to go to a bigger city. I needed to go to either New York or LA. And I didn't know anyone in LA, but I had tons of family in in Brooklyn. And so I just figured, yeah, I'm going to go to New York. And it just, I, I, once I made up my mind, I was like laser focused on it. And I started working at this, our, our local mall, 163rd Street Mall. Okay. What were you doing? Well, originally I was working at a sandwich shop. This friend of mine. Um, what, what is it with you and sandwich shops? When I met you, you were working in a sandwich shop. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Working with food. Yeah. And I was a cook too. When I moved to New York, I became a cook. Right. But um, this friend of mine, um, her dad bought a sort of like a little franchise place where they sold like specialty meats and things like that. And they had a little deli. And so I, I asked her if, you know, hey, you need any help? And so she said, yeah, I think I can get you a job. And so yeah, I was making, you know, a few bucks an hour or whatever. But, it, you know, so I was living at home. So I was just saving all of my money. Yeah. And so I was just had this vision of like, okay, I'm going to save all this money. I'm going to move to New York. And that's it. Like that is just, you know, very, like I said, very laser focused. Um, then uh, I, I so got... Like, how old were you? 16 or 17? Something like that? 17. Yeah, I was 17. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm out of here. Um, yeah, I should back up a little bit. So one of the things is like, the difference between who I was when I was 14 and then who I was when I was 18 is just like worlds apart. You know, when I was 14, I was still in school. I was, you know, getting high a lot. I was just, you know, not really didn't have much of a focus. I mean, I already started playing music, but it was more as a hobby, more for fun, things like that. Um, by the time I was 18, I had already been in, you know, a few bands and um, I had played some shows. I had a fake ID, so I was able to get into clubs and like, you know, play in nightclubs. I was hanging out primarily with musicians who were 10 to 15 years older than I was. I really didn't hang out with a lot of my childhood friends anymore. It was just, uh, I was just really, my whole life was just music. I dropped out of school. I dropped out of 10th grade. And I told my dad, I just said, you know, there's no reason for me to go to school because I'm going to be a musician. My dad was a singer and on some level he understood that, although he was kind of disappointed, you know, so I wound up getting my GED um, just to please him. I just said, okay, you know, I was 15 when I turned 16. I just took the exam and I got my GED. So, yeah, I mean, so, but there was also the music, you know, and I had some friends in Miami who, 
I was very close with and, and um, musicians. And I kind of felt bad sort of leaving them behind. But ultimately, I just kind of had to move on because I just didn't see any future, even with them. You know, I could have worked the circuit with them. Um, they, they were getting gigs and um, sort of professional working professionally, you know. But I didn't want to play top 40 or covers. You know, I didn't, you know, I wanted to do original music. And Miami had a really good music scene for alternative sort of new wave and sort of post-punk stuff. Um, a lot of people don't know that. But once again, it was very cliquish. It was very like who you know and stuff like that. And um, it, it, I just wanted to go somewhere where I could start fresh. You know, I could just clean slate sort of thing. So, I mean, my life was really different when I was 18, 17 and 18. I felt like I was just sort of hanging out. Yeah. It's kind of like a ghost walking around my old neighborhood because I knew that like I had no future there and I knew that it didn't matter to me what anyone else was doing because I was leaving. So that was my headspace. And um, so I was working at the mall and um, uh, I got laid off from that job, the sandwich shop. Mm -hmm. And there was a guy who... uh, it was a young guy. He was like 24. I was you know, 17, 18 at the time. And, um, and he was like kind of a rich kid, you know, and his father bought him a, a franchise and he was running a cookie store. It was called Victor's Cookies. And he liked me. He'd come over sometimes and I'd make him a good sandwich. I put some extra meat on it or whatever. And he, and he just said, <laughs> yeah. he liked me. He said, he's like, Hey, Michael, you know, he's like, Hey, if, he's one day he said, if you ever need a job, let me know. Cause he just thought I was a good worker or something. Yeah. So I got laid off and I, and I literally took off my apron from the sandwich shop, walked across the food court. You know, you can just imagine it's like suburban mall sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. You know? I can see it right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, like a scene from ghost world or something. Yeah. And, um, and I crossed the food court and I went up to, his name was, uh, Barney. Um, and I said, Hey, uh, you still want to give me a job? I said, he said, well, I'm not, I don't really need anyone right now. And I said, well, I just got laid off. He says, you know what? Yeah, okay. <laughs> he just handed me an application. I signed it and I put his apron on and I, I just started right there. I didn't even go home. Like it was just like, I just, like I had a five minute break. And then I was, and then my, yeah. my friend whose dad owned the sandwich shop, she walked over and she said, what's going on? And I said, I said, I just got hired over. She goes, oh, thank God. I'm so happy because she felt so bad about it, you know. So um, so I was okay. working there. And I hadn't seen Tony Simmons in a while. I mean, I we just kind of drifted apart, you know, especially once I started playing music. You know, it's funny. When I first got into playing the guitar, actually, when, when we first started hanging out in 77, I really hadn't. I think I was noodling on the guitar, but I never yeah. really you know, got serious. And like within six months of hanging out with him by like 1978, I had that guitar with me all the time. Um, and he hated it. You know, he just thought it was kind of a distraction, um, but he tolerated it, you know, and then, but, but I wanted to say, but music was always a big part of hanging. Like if anyone ever hung out with me, um, listening to music, I had this really nice stereo system. So we'd always put on all these records and stuff, you know, different kinds of music, um, a lot of rock, you know, but a lot of other stuff too. And, um, and I think Tony liked that. I mean, he liked 
the music part. He just didn't like when I was playing music. And um, <laughs> and so maybe he was just jealous I, that it was taking attention away from him. It was, yeah. I, I'm sure that's what it was. And 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 like I said, he. I think he also thought that it sort of um, limited our 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 opportunities, like things we could do, you know. Um, but you know, if if he had nothing else to do. And, you know, he had a joint or if I had a joint, he'd still smoke it with me. And we'd just sit in my backyard or on my porch or something. And we would just sort of veg out and I'd just be noodling on some Led Zeppelin song or something, you know, <laughs> just stairway to heaven. And he would just tolerate it, you know. So as I started to um, get better at playing the guitar, I got into a band pretty quickly, you know, um, with a bunch of guys who were a lot older. They needed a rhythm guitar player. That was exactly what they were looking for. They were kind of like a... A Pat Travers, I don't know if you remember him. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, sort of wannabe thing. Um, uh, and also uh, a couple other, I can't remember what the other bands were, but there were like Fog Hat, I think was another band they really liked. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but the guy, the, the leader of the band, he just wanted to play solos all the time. And he didn't like the fact that, um, you know, that the rhythm guitar would drop out when he started to play solos. So, um, so he wanted that rhythm to always be there. So that's, you know, that's, that's, and then once that started, a lot of my friends just faded, you know, I mean, I, maybe I just wasn't that good of a friend, you know, I don't know. Not that I was doing it intentionally, but I just, you know, it just would have been all like right after 1979, I guess. Uh, I I can even tell you the day uh, it was, uh, it was January of 80. And the reason why I remember it was because it was the Super Bowl. Okay. Um, between the uh, Steelers and the Rams. And um, and I was watching that game. And these two guys came over my house. Um, these two musicians, one of them was Bob, different Bob, not Bob Lane. Um, he was a drummer. He was 10 years older than I was. And then the other guy, the guitar player was Warren, and he was about six years older, something like that. You know, I'm 14 still, you know, because my birthday's in April, and this is 1980. And these two men come knocking at my door and they basically have a, an offer for me. And they said, you know, we need a rhythm guitar player. Are you up for it? And I just said, sure. You know, I didn't even think twice. And that was it, you know? So starting in 1980, like, yeah, probably six months after, um, after Richie was killed. Um, but like I said, it was gradual because Tony and I still hung out for a lot of that year, 1980, even into 81. But, like I said, as I got better and better and I got, you know, then I started playing with bands that were more professional and, and you know, playing gigs and doing stuff like that. Um, a lot of my f- neighborhood friends just sort of faded into the background. And then also because I dropped out of school. So I didn't even have connection to school anymore. Right. You know, and I was staying up really late, sleeping all day and, and playing music. And that's, you know, my life has pretty much been the same ever since. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Huh? Well, tell me about the last couple of times that you hung out with Tony, like before you made your move. So I was working at the cookie place. And um, one of the things that I used to do when I was working at the cookie store was, um, you know, they had the food court on one side of the mall. And then they had um, like a little mini cookie stand on the other side of the mall, you know, so they could like sell their cookies in different spots in the mall. And so we called that the cookie cart. And um, I always signed up for the cookie cart because I just 
wanted to be away from everyone. Uh-huh. It's my nature. And I, right. and I could just sit there on a stool and there'd be a few trays of cookies there and I had a little cash register and then I would read my books and people would come up and buy cookies. It was great. I had no boss. I had no one looking over my shoulder. And, um, you know, the hardest thing was just having to sit there for seven hours or whatever it was. Right. Um, and so um, one day Tony walks up to me and, you know, I said, hey, man, how you doing? And so, you know, he's sort of, you know, as, you know, as if I had like I'd been on vacation or something. I was like, what, what have you been up to, man? Um, I hadn't seen him in a while. He, he got a car at some point, you know, once he got his driver's license. Remember, he was uh, two years older than I was. Right. Um, and so he was, you know was able to get his driver's license pretty much when he was 16 when um, he saved up some money and he got a car like you know kind of a crappy used japanese car whatever and um but it ran you know (laughs) i I was trying to envision what kind of car tony simmons would drive and i imagine a a, either like a pacer or a pinto no no it was a japanese car for sure it was it was like a kind of a crappy toyota thing or something okay you know cheap on the gas kind of thing and 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 it was pretty used you know (laughs) And so he says, hey, you want to ride home? And I said, sure, why not? So, you know, when I got off my shift, you know, we got in the car, we started driving. And um, near that mall, there was an old historic black neighborhood. It was called Washington Square. And it was left over from segregation or something because it was just, it was a square of maybe four blocks square, something like that. And it was all black. And if, if you lived across the street from it, that was all white, but you cross the street and it's sort of like, it just, there's this- A real line. Yeah, like a yeah. real line, yeah, that nobody crossed. And um, and so um, I had some friends who lived in there, um, a couple of friends of mine who went to Oak Grove Elementary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had been in there before to visit my friend Jonathan and he lived in there. And so, you know, it wasn't scary or anything like that. You know, it was just, you know, it was just left over from segregation. That's all I could say. But um, one thing we knew is that you could get weed in there. <laughs> you could, you okay. could buy weed. And so Tony heads over there because he said he had 10 bucks or so. I think it was like a 10, like a dime bag or something. And it was pretty routine. I mean, you just sort of drive up. There was a sort of one corner and there would be a guy standing there and you hand him 10 and then he just hands you a little baggie and then you drive off, you know. Yeah. So we did that. And then he starts driving south um, and south of that neighborhood by a few more blocks is um, Southern Memorial Cemetery, and that's where Richie's buried. And so he heads over there. And, you know, of course, we're rolling a joint, or maybe we had a pipe or something, but, you know, we're already smoking that stuff. And um, I hadn't been in that cemetery, and I hadn't been to Richie's grave up up until this point. Um, And he pulls in. He knew exactly where it was. And it started raining a little, you know, just like drizzling. Mm -hmm. And um, we had the windows rolled down. He didn't have any AC or anything like that. And I'll never forget it. It's like, uh, this was that moment where you realize you're stoned. You know, and you, you take a few hits and then you're like, wow, I'm stoned. And you transition from being straight to stoned. And there's right. always a little bit of a little disconnect there, you know, initially. <laughs> it doesn't matter yeah. how many times you've been stoned. There's always like that sort of, re- it's like an epiphany. It's like that realization. So I, uh, I... You know, I was just sitting there and then this song came on the radio um, by Psychedelic Furs called Love My Way, which at the time was on the radio all the time. And it's a creepy song. You know, it's got this. I love it. It's a beautiful song. It's the one with the marimbas going. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a great song. Um, And it was a huge hit at the time. Um, But it has like this creepy element to it. 
you know, the way the synthesizers and the marimba and stuff all interact. And the chord progression is somewhat haunting, you know. Um, and it literally just started as we stopped the car and, you know, the, the car door was ajar and I was getting ready to get out. And I turned the radio up a little louder so I'd be able to hear it, the song, because I liked the song. Mm-hmm. And Richie's grave was just a few, you know, maybe like 10 yards from where he parked. And so we got out of the car and like I said, it was raining a little bit and, you know, it was probably about seven at night, six, seven at night. Um, We're talking now, it was like probably October, I want to say of 1983. And so, like I said, I had been very nostalgic. I wound up leaving Miami in November. So I was only a month away from when I left. And I was really feeling like everything that I was seeing in these last weeks that I was in Miami was like the last time I'd ever see it. Of course, that's not true. But, but at yeah. the time, you know, I kind of felt that way. Um, and so I was already in that headspace. And I walked up and I, and I looked down. I'm looking for headstones. You know, there's no headstones. This is one of those cemeteries where it's, it's mainly plaques. You know, they, they lie flat on the ground, these little bronze plaques. And, um, and I looked down and I, I was horrified. I mean, that's, that's all I could say. I mean, it was, it was so depressing that um, I actually started to feel that sort of clinical depression, you know, the kind where you start to feel hopeless. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever felt that, but it's just like y- y- you can feel it has a physical effect on you. It's not just like, oh, I feel depressed. And it's like all in your head. Um, and I looked down and I all, and the reason why was because it just had his name and his birth date and the date of his death. And that was it. And I just thought, I, I knew him. Like, that was a living, breathing person, you know? And there's no legacy. There's nothing. It's as if he never existed. It's so insignificant. Yeah, exactly. And so, of course, I'm stoned, and that's, you know, intensifying the whole thing. And Tony, I, you know, he's standing around, he's sort of pacing around, whatever, and I, I don't get the feeling like uh, it's having the same effect on him. You know, of course, he's been to Richie's grave before. I don't know how many times. Um, And I just sort of stood there looking down for about, you know, easily a few minutes. You know, the song ended and then, you know, another song came on or whatever. Mm -hmm. I I just, it was a moment, you know, and I just thought, man, if there's ever a way to tell this story, you know, I would would love to, to tell it just to give this kid just some significance, you know, because this is bad. I mean, this is... You know, and like I said, Richie wasn't my best friend or anything like that. And he kind of ripped me off a couple times or at least once. Mm-hmm. Um, but that didn't matter. So I got a little bit irritated by Tony because I think he was just, I don't know, he wasn't really respecting the moment, you know. I can't remember what he was saying, but he probably just wanted to leave or whatever. Uh, maybe he thought I was being too serious or something. And um, and we get in the car and he proceeds to tell me this story, um, comes at, completely out of left field. And he says, um, he goes, yeah, you know, I, me and a couple of the scouts were here um not too long ago. And I said, well, you know, were you just visiting the grave or what? He goes, no. He goes, he goes we dug up Richie's remains. He's, he's cremated, you know, and it's just an urn down there. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, you didn't dig up his remains. Like, come on. And he said, yes, we did. We dug him up and we took the urns and we, and we went back to someone's house or whatever. And we broke it open 
and we dumped out some of Richie's ashes and we mixed it with cocaine and we snorted it. We snorted Richie. <laughs> and he started laughing. Can you believe it? We snorted Richie. And I looked at him and I said, first of all, Tony, that's bullshit. You didn't do that. And second of all, like, what's wrong with you? Like, you know, yeah, that's what I was saying a few minutes before I told, you know, this story. I just said, you know, every once in a while, he'd just leave you scratching your head. I said, you know, Richie's your best friend. Like, why would you say that? Like, why would you? He goes, because it happened. We did. I'm telling you, like, I'm, I'm being honest. And I was just like, it was one of those lies that he was insisting was true. You know, and he was like, he was fighting for it. You know, he wanted me to believe it. And I just said, no, I'm not going to believe it because it's ridiculous. And I, and I, and I'm, I'm kind of offended. You know, I said, Tony, your friend is dead. Like, doesn't that like, doesn't that mean anything to you? You know, I remember when my grandmother died, I was pretty close to her. Um, I was eight when she passed away and she's the first like very close family member that I ever had who, who died. And I remember my uncle asking me, this was, a, you know, maybe a week after the funeral or something. It was a Saturday and I was like playing and he sensed that like, well, that kid's having too much fun. He's too happy. Yeah. So he sort of pulled me aside and he said, what do you think about your grandmother dying? Like, he, I guess he wanted me to be more aware, somber. And I just said, I don't know. Like I didn't, hadn't really taken the time to think about what that meant. And he just said, this is what it means. It means you will never see her ever again for the rest of your life. He said, do you understand what that means? And, and I kind of thought about it for a minute and I kind of shrugged it off and I went back to playing, you know, but it, that stuck with me over the years that like, and, and now that my parents have passed away, it's, it, you know, it's, it, it is true. It just holds more meaning now. Yeah. The finality of death is, is it's sobering to say the least. And I was trying to convey that to Tony. It just seemed to me like he never really truly processed what had happened. Because you don't say stuff like that. And and then, of course, if that really did happen, then that's just horrific, you know. But like I said, I think that's a far-fetched one, you know. We'll be right back. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. So that's one of the last times I hung out with Tony. That's the last significant interaction I had with Tony before I moved to New York. And, you know, I did wind up coming back home for visits. I never moved back to Miami after that, but I would visit occasionally, like once a year. These visits were brief. I mean, they were usually only about a week long. And by 1985, South Florida really did start to change. You know, Miami Vice was a big, of course, the cocaine money that was pouring in. But Miami Vice, that show really did a lot to sort of transform Miami. It was like the beginning of what the Miami that we have today. 
which I'm, I'm not very fond of, by the way. I prefer the old Miami. But this international progressive city that's, you know, like you walk down the street and there's like models everywhere. And, you know, it's just um, it's, it's a whole different experience. Pink linen sports jackets. Yeah. All of, yeah, all of that stuff started in 85, 86, you know, with that TV show. And so um, a couple of my friends actually got jobs as extras on that show. And, um, you know, and so Tony claimed that he was in a scene. I don't know if that's true. Um, and and he wound up meeting Richard Gere, who just happened to be hanging around on the set. And, um, okay. and he and Richard... And they became good buddies. Yeah, like- he and Richard Gere became really good friends. Um, and he was telling me all about Richard Gere. And I'm like... Why Richard Gere? Like, first of all, like, if you're going to make up a story, like, why isn't it De Niro or someone, you know, like, why Richard Gere? Like, I don't, so, but um, here he is. And, um, and, and then I said, look, I, I can't believe you, Tony. I'm sorry. Like, I'm really happy that things are happening here in Miami and, and, you know, uh, you're getting work and stuff like that. But I, I can't, I, he says, you're going to come to my house right now and ask my mom. He said, you know, Richard Gere came over to my house and had dinner with us. And, and I was just like, are you kidding me? Like, and of course he was just, wow. you know, if I had called his bluff, I'm sure it, it would have been bullshit. His mom probably would have looked at me and said, okay, really? Like, but uh, he knew that I wasn't going to call his bluff. I said, okay, Tony, if you insist, sure, Richard Gere, whatever. And so, you know, as, as, as the years went on, you know, we just fell out of touch, you know, until I reconnected with him in 2009, 2010, that I never really heard from much from him ever again. We didn't keep in touch. We didn't write. We didn't talk on the phone. He just sort of faded, you know. So how do you feel about him today after looking back on all that's happened? Um, I, I choose not to remember him the way that, you know, that last interaction I had with him at the cemetery. Um, first of all, it was depressing. But second of all, this this little story about, you know, what he said he did with the other scouts. Um, was About Richie's ashes. Yeah, yeah. That's just this, a certain level of being deranged or whatever. Um, right. And that's just, that, that doesn't sum up Tony for me. But that whole incident, even though that was more or less the last time I hung out with him, I didn't want that to be my last memory of him, of like, like the end of our friendship, you know. So over the years, I always chose to think of this other incident, um, but I think really summed up him in a way that's much nicer and the Tony Simmons that I knew was a nice guy and meant well. And it's, it's not very eventful, but it's just, you know, like I said, it's just, it's just for me and my peace of mind. And that's that after he had been hanging out at my house, you know, sort of accepted as a friend and a good friend, and he became part of like our crew and all that stuff. Um, he really appreciated that. I think it just, I think he really felt like he was part of our family, you know. He sounds like he was the type of person who wanted to be included. He did. He did, and he was. And I know that on a certain level, he knew that I cared about him, like, as a good friend. And even my brother did. Yeah. You know, even my brother did. Like, and, and, you know, and that means a lot. Because remember, you know, before he became friends with us, you know, he was sort of known as, like, the neighborhood sissy or something, or, you know, the neighborhood fag, you know, which is not fair and not nice. But um, especially with my brother's friends, they sort of treated him badly. But once my brother sort of accepted him through me, then that stuff stopped. 
he was cool because he was hanging out with the cool kids, you know? Right. And so he, one day, just out of nowhere, he just said, um, I want to do something nice for you and Tom, my brother. I said, what? I said, you don't have to do anything. And he said, no, I, I really want to do something nice for you guys. And I was like, what? He goes, I want to take you guys out for dinner. I said, what? You don't, you don't have to take us out to dinner. You know, he, he says, you know, I, I want to do it. Like I, I, you know, and he asked my brother, you know, my brother said, sure. You know, right. Like my brother didn't hesitate. He's like, sure. <laughs> and he yeah. says, see, Tom, Tom's okay with it. I said, all right, Tony. I said, you know, I figured we'd go to Vito's pizza or something, you know, like our little neighborhood hang, you know, we'd buy a pie and, you know, yeah. he'd pick up the check, you know, or whatever. And it'd be easy. You know, it was like, okay. So uh, I don't know how many days went by, but um, I think we had said Sunday or something. And so Sunday came and, and Tony comes over and he's like dressed real nicely. He's, he was, he had good taste with clothes, you know? And I'm sitting there with my T-shirt and my jeans, like a bum, you know. And um, and, uh, and he says, "What's wrong?" He goes, "Come on, we're going." And I said, "What do you mean we're going?" I thought we were going to Vito's or something. And he says, "No, no, we're going to a nice place. I want you to dress up." And I said, "I don't dress up. I don't. I don't dress up." Like I, my brother gets on my case. He says, "Mike," he says, "Take off that shirt." Mike, he grabs one of his shirts and he says, "Here, put this on." I'm like, "Okay," you know. I hated doing that, but I was like, "All right, whatever." My brother puts on, you know nice clothes too and so i'm the bum you know so we get in the car and um we drive and he takes us to this really nice steak and lobster place like fancy you know and i'm like wow and and the whole time i think there's a catch like at some point he's gonna like get up and leave us and you know (laughs) leave us with the check or something (laughs) you know but no it was all legit it was just a really nice heartfelt gesture and um, when the check came he you know, he picked it up and I said, Tony, let us leave, let us leave the tip. All right. He, he let us leave the tip, but it was expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, it was expensive because my brother, you know, <laughs> I still ordered something cheap, you know, cause I, I knew Tony didn't have that much money, but my brother, he's just like, yes, I'll take the, uh, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the filet mignon and uh, yeah, the filet mignon, the crab cakes. And then, um, do you have the Alaskan crab or the lobster? You know, <laughs> it's just like, which, which one is in season? And, you know, he orders like a really nice bottle of wine and I'm just like, so, um, I thanked him, you know, and I, and the, I'll never forget the look on his face. He was so proud. He was so happy, you know, to do something nice. And that's the Tony that I choose to remember. In 1986, Mike had been away from Miami for three years, and he hadn't bothered to keep up with what had been going on with Chuck Falco or any of the other kids from the neighborhood. He had moved on and made a new life for himself, playing music in New York and later in San Francisco, which was where we met. But that's another story. After the attempted kidnapping of Jerry Burkowski and pleading guilty to the lesser weapons charges in 1983, Chuck served three and a half years of a seven-year sentence. And by 1986, he was a free man. It wouldn't be until many years later that Mike would find out that Chuck had never stopped indulging in his criminal activities of victimizing children. So tell me about what happened to Chuck after he, I guess he served his sentence, right? How much time did he do? Um, He got seven years, but he only served three and a half. So he was out in 86. So as Chuck continues to do these things, I'm not finding out about this the way I found out about all the previous things because I'm not in Miami anymore. I wind up finding out about these things later on after doing research. 
So he gets out in 86 and he winds up, uh, I don't know if he sold his house, um, but I do know that he moved West Palm Beach and I'm kind of thinking that he probably divorced his wife at that point. Um, she's not mentioned. Yeah, we don't know that for sure, huh? I think yeah. I think that was looked into. And Well, she's with him through all of the stuff. Like, she's with him through the shooting, and she's with him through the Jerry stuff. But then when we get to some of this stuff later on, she's not with him anymore. She's not referenced. She's not there. So that's why I'm saying um, I think they probably split up at some at this point in time as well, late 80s sort of thing. He moves to West Palm Beach, which is north of Dade County. Um, and so... To this day, Chuck is considered to be one of the worst pedophiles ever involved with the Scouts mm-hmm. because of the fact that he wasn't prosecuted for any of those crimes while he was a Scoutmaster. Um, technically, he's not under that umbrella. So um, when you look at the Boy Scouts of America, a PDF that has all the information on the child uh, molesters, he's actually not there. Um, he's sort of there via sort of like an asterisk. You know, um, because, okay. yeah, because technically they're like, okay, this is a list of scoutmasters who were molesting boys and got caught when they were still scoutmasters and they were prosecuted or, you know, some of the scouts came forward and testified against him. That never happened with Chuck and it, it never happened with any, none of the scouts ever testified against him. Though it's true that no scouts ever testified against Chuck in 1982, when he was arrested for the attempted kidnapping of Jerry Burkowski, Willard Allensworth the boy who was caught with Chuck wearing nothing but a pair of basketball shorts did make a statement, but for different reasons. According to an article in the Miami Herald, Willard was originally charged as a juvenile with carrying a concealed weapon. In an effort to get Chuck on tape, admitting that he was trying to actually kill Jerry, the prosecutors offered to drop the charge if Willard would agree to cooperate with investigators by wearing a wire. Though the recording revealed nothing about premeditated murder, what they did discover was that Chuck had tried to persuade Willard to lie to the DA about his intentions against Jerry, resulting in a charge of tampering with a witness, for which he received an additional two years, plus the five for the weapons charges. Another piece of evidence that was discovered, but later thrown out in the 1979 investigation of Ritchie's murder, was a box of photos. Another thing that we haven't really covered, we I think we sort of alluded to it a little bit, but we haven't really covered the fact that when the police were in his house when you know, Richie's body was found, mm-hmm. they confiscated his little box of photos that he was using to blackmail the boys with. So they had this the state of Florida, Dade County, they had that evidence. They could yeah. see right there that he was a pedophile and a child molester. Um, I know there were pictures, because I was told, and I know Chuck was an amateur photographer. He had a black room in his house. He was developing pictures. Um, and I'm pretty sure, because Tony Simmons told me that, he also had a little 8mm camera, you know, the old 8 millimeters that used film. Um, and so it was probably little homemade movies and photos in some sort of box or something that, you know, he was keeping somewhere. And so the cops found that. And there was talk about prosecuting him. I think they went to some of the scouts and asked them if they wanted to testify, and they didn't want to. And then Chuck's lawyer had the evidence thrown out because it was illegal confiscation. It wasn't part of the shooting. The, The cops didn't have a warrant. 
to grab that stuff. And I don't know what the laws were back then or whatever, but it was inadmissible in, in the case. And I never heard anything Ken Drucker even caring about it. He Once again, I said this before, these guys, they get laser focused on how they're going to prosecute the case. And they only use evidence that they think is going to work to get a conviction. And if they get the conviction, great. If they don't, then it's sort of like all these loose ends are still just sitting there, but they don't care because they don't care about the narrative. They don't care about the story. They just want to win, you know? And there's a lot of instances where, um, you know, uh, I think there was a similar case in uh, Serial where there was a, the lawyer who represented the boy who supposedly did the yeah. murder his girlfriend. Adnan Syed. Yeah. Um, and that lawyer didn't pursue certain evidence because she said straight up, she said, well, if it doesn't help us, let's not use it. Like, in other words, we're only, only going to use stuff that can help us win. And so, um, so I think this is a very similar incident here. Um, later on, when uh, Chuck is caught again, you know, the, the, with Willard wearing the Speedos or whatever, he's, you know, tight. Right. 1982. The gym shorts. And the whole, and when the story was more or less, you know, told that the idea was to try to use Willard as bait to lure Jerry out of the house um, with the promise of some sort of sex either between Jerry and Willard or, or with Chuck, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, but, uh, Jerry didn't go for it. But when that story came out, when they, the, you know, I'm assuming Willard told the cops, you know, what was going on. The, there was this new lawyer, Laura Kogan. She said, okay, I want to go down this road. Like I want to, I want to prosecute for this. Mm-hmm. And once again, the scouts weren't willing to speak up. They weren't willing to testify because of the shame and the embarrassment. So they went for the weapons, you know, they went for what they could get him on, you know, which was just the weapons charges. And so that's why he went to jail for the seven years for that. Um, And all this time he's under the radar as a pedophile. And that's, that's the tragedy. That's where the state lets down the community. You see what I'm saying? Because, okay, he serves three and a half years or whatever, but when he gets out, he knows that he hasn't been punished for what his real crimes are, his serious crime. I mean, not that what he was trying to do, Jerry, wasn't a serious crime, but, but I'm just yeah. saying, like, you know, he's, he's a habitual predator, and he's not going to stop. So he goes to West Palm Beach and he you know, creates a new identity for himself there. And he winds up either buying or renting a nursery, a plant nursery. And um, he gets involved with, um, he likes gardening. You know, he, he likes plants and he likes to grow things. Mm-hmm. Um, he puts ads in the local rags or whatever they are, you know, like the little, I want to say newspaper, but, you know, the local papers or whatever they are. Yeah. You know, um, and uh, advertiser or whatever. Yeah, a little advertiser. Yeah, exactly. And um, he's advertising for um, boys if they want to do volunteer work and help the community by planting trees and, and getting experience working in his nursery and learning about um, that sort of stuff, you know, planting and growing and, you know, whatever it is. I don't know much about it, obviously, because I don't even have the terminology, but, um, but, (laughs) you know, it's good. Horticulture. Yeah. Horticulture. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love growing tomatoes, you know, that's, that's what I know, you know, but, um, yeah, this is much more elaborate than that. And sure enough, some of these young boys, they come in and they, they start working with him and you can only imagine what happens next, you know, 
Chuck has this method and it's, 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 it's his MO. And, um, he's, it's the same thing he pulled with, uh, I'm sure it's the same thing that he was indoctrinated into when he was a, a teenager, when he was in the scouts. And it's the same thing that he probably experienced in the army. And then he went on as a scout and in the neighborhood and he, you know, he was, uh, did he try to get them like on outings or overnight camping trips or something? Were there any details about that? No, I didn't see any any in any of the reports. I didn't see any okay. any yeah, I didn't see any situation. I'm just wondering if he was doing that same thing with the the drugs and the he was. alcohol oh, no, no. and overnight trips. I don't know that they were overnight trips, but certainly that's what I mean by his MO. He he yeah. definitely used quaaludes and um alcohol and cocaine. Um anything pretty much that 14-year-old kids would be into experimenting with. Right. And that was his MO. He would prime them, get them in, you know, comfortable, get them, you know, liking him, thinking he's this cool guy. And then at some point he would make some move, you know, he would do some sort of thing where the whole situation would just become more of a sexual situation. And so before long, these kids are, you know, they're involved in these sex acts with Chuck and he's got the camera. Now he's using video, of course, instead of the old eight millimeter film. So he's got these VHS tapes that he has and and he does the same thing. He threatens them. He says that if they tell, uh, he's going to post pictures of them all over the school. He's going to, you know, tell people about what these kids are doing. And he's, you know, he thinks that he's dealing with Gen Xers, you know, or, or maybe these kids are still Gen Xers. I'm not, you know, I'm just saying, but he thinks he's dealing with kids who are more our age, like kids who grew up in the 60s and 70s, who the worst stigma they could have would be someone finding out that they were involved in some sort of homosexual act. He thought that shaming them would, would be right. enough to keep them quiet. Right. And this is why we referenced, you know, way back at the beginning, um, the different parenting styles and how times have changed and, and the difference between the generations. You know, I feel like it's the ultimately the psychology changes. Yeah. How, well, how do you mean? Um, I, I just feel like kids that were born a little bit later, like the early 80s, were just brought up differently. Parents by then uh, raised their kids differently than, let's say, my mom's generation did, where we were more neglected and sort of left on our own, try to figure things out on our own, you know. Mm-hmm. And like I already said before, you know, the, to confide in one another, to be part of our little society of friends was very important. And to lose face in that group was very difficult. You know, if someone finds out that you did something and then they don't want to be your friend anymore, that, you know, you would lose like this whole society, like this whole group of people. But I think that kids who were born in the early 80s, their family structure was closer and their parents were more understanding and and not as neglectful and made an effort to be more part of the kid's life. And so the kids felt like they could trust their parents and tell the parents the truth. Even if it was something bad, they would just still say, you know, mom, I got to tell you something happened. I got into trouble. You know, I shouldn't have been doing this, but, you know, of course I'm generalizing. I mean, I'm sure there are, you know, people of all ages who would do that. And then there's, you know, people of all ages who would not do it. But, but it just seemed to me like the psychology of Chuck was that he thought that these things don't change, that people don't change, that times don't change, that as generations go by, kids don't change, but they do. They do because the environment changes, the world changes, we progress, 
you know? It's cyclical almost. You can almost set your watch to it that like go through different eras, you know, different phases where people are more liberal and then more conservative or whatever. But, you know, he didn't account for that is the point I'm trying to make. So he just stuck to that same old method that had served him well for a really long time. And what happened was this new group of kids who were volunteering to work with him at this nursery were molested. They didn't like it. They, they wanted to get out of it. And they finally just said, I'm calling his bluff. I don't care. I don't think he's going to post these pictures. I don't think he's going to do it. You know, he, wouldn't he get in trouble too if he did that? Like they started thinking logically through this and they just said, no, I'm going to tell my parents, you know? And so uh, that was it. That was the end of him because uh, the cops, they took it seriously. The parents went to the police and the police went to his house. This time they did have warrants. They did check his house. They did find the videotapes. They did find the pictures. He was so arrogant. He didn't even hide them from what I read. They were just kind of out in the, the cops didn't even have to look that hard. He was like, they were just sitting next to his VHS machine or something as if he had just been watching them like the night before, you know? Um, he had been getting away with this for so long that he just figured, you know, no one's ever going to catch me. He was a true narcissist. Totally, totally. Um, no doubt about it. We'll be right back. Okay, so in 1994, Chuck would finally go to trial, but this time it, things go much differently, right? Yeah. Um, this time there was a trial. He wasn't able to plead out anything. And uh, he was very cocky. I think he felt like he could create this persona that had worked for him before, the feel sorry for me, sympathetic thing, um, and that somehow he would beat it. So they view the tapes in detail, and uh, and they said that it was just horrific. I mean... Uh, it, it wasn't just sex acts. It was the way that he was controlling them, the way that he was, you know, manipulating them. And in one instance, uh, one of the boys that he molested was under 12. It was an 11-year-old boy. And by now, another thing that changed in that time period from the 70s to the 90s was Florida passed a bunch of really strict laws about you know, molesting children. Mm-hmm. And one of the laws was that if you molest a child who's under 12, you go to jail for life. That's it. It's like murder. It's a life sentence just for that one. And, you know, he's, as this trial is going forward, he's realizing, you know, he's shitting his pants. He's, he's, he's realizing he, he's, this is going to happen. This is happening, dude. You know, you're, you're never going to get out of this. So he starts to get desperate and he has his lawyers, uh, I think it's in the closing remarks. Um, He has the lawyer get up and sort of go through this whole sympathy thing. And they reference Father Carroll. And, and, you know, I don't I don't think they reference him by name, but they they reference his experience as a Boy Scout and the fact that he's a victim. And the only reason why he's doing this is because he's been traumatized and he shouldn't go to jail. He should just get therapy, you know, like it's an illness and he just needs to get treatment. And then he'll be fine because he's still a positive addition to the community. Everything else is so great. Everything else that he's doing is so great. Um, and that's basically what his lawyer gets up there and tries to spin it in such a way. And, um, and it gets shot down in flames.
after you know he's found guilty and then they sentenced uh there's uh, one of the lawyers one of the defense lawyers went up to chuck's lawyer and this is actually in the article and just said you know how dare you you know how dare you get up there and lie for this monster um and and all of this whole community would suffer if this man wasn't put away Chuck's lawyer said, yeah, I'm just defending my client. I got to do whatever I can. Once again, I have to do whatever it takes to win. It's all about winning with these guys. A unanimous jury found Chuck Falco guilty on all charges. The sentence was handed down by Judge Walter Colbath, and he threw the book at him. Six consecutive life sentences for sexual battery of an 11-year-old boy, with each act counting as a life sentence, and 250 years for the boys over 12. That's 25 years for each sexual assault, with an additional 15 years for promoting the sexual performance of a child. So he's never getting out, right? Yeah. And I have to say, um, you know, that's where the man belongs. Um, we, we like to think of prison as a place where people are reformed and, uh, and they change. And, you know, maybe at some point when they're older, they can be released and actually become positive addition to the community. I'm sure in many cases that is what happens. But, um, I think in Chuck's case, he is a predator. He's that rare sort of Ted Bundy, but a child molester instead of a murderer, you know, where they're just programmed in such a way where they just don't feel any contrition. They don't feel, they just, they wake up the next day and they don't feel bad about what they did. Sometimes if, if I have one too many glasses of wine, the next day I wake up, what did I do? I'm, I'm you know, I'm worried. Oh, who, did I say something? You know, did I, did I, uh, hopefully I didn't go near my phone, you know? Um, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> because, you know, I was raised Catholic, you know, <laughs> it's like this guilt stuff. <laughs> but I would yeah. say Chuck is like the opposite. He's just like, he has none of that. Yeah. And maybe it is the result of, of being abused as a scout, you know, maybe that traumatized him in such a way. We're not experts here, uh, but just from what I've read and what I understand that often it takes that sort of magical combination of someone who's predisposed psychologically to uh, whatever you would want to call it, uh, not narcissism. Well, it's it's antisocial is actually the... right. People use that term a little bit too loosely because they say, oh, you know, I don't want to go out tonight. I'm antisocial. But what antisocial actually means is that you you really feel like you're outside of society. Right. And, and lacking, uh, incapable of empathy. And you take that and then you throw in a shitty childhood uh, abuse. And what he saw in Vietnam. Let's not forget about that. A shitty war. Yep. You know? Right. So, you know, this is just sort of a recipe for yeah. disaster. Yeah, I mean, society definitely let him down, but when he was given a second chance, I mean, after Richie's mm-hmm. death, uh, if that doesn't wake you up, if you don't straighten up your life after that one, there's no excuse anymore, dude. You know, this kid died, and you're still molesting boys, and you're still trying to get revenge, and you're still like, I mean, he, he's sick. He's sick. And yes, yeah. I think he should get therapy in prison. I mean, you know, that's fine, you know, but it's people like him. That's the reason why we have prisons is to keep them away from the rest of society, because he sees society as a different species that he can prey upon. And he got away with it for too long. Unfortunately, Um, he could have been put away a lot earlier. Um, 
I, I just, I believe the, the system failed the community. Eventually they got him, you know, Leanne and I, we went over a lot of that, that footage, the news footage, and, and we were shocked at how lenient some of these judges were and that they, they just seemed to be on Chuck's side. And Leanna said, it's shocking because it seems like the argument is, can you own a gun? Can you protect your property? Um, what did Chuck do for the community? And they're forgetting the most important thing, which is this kid was killed. He was 14 years old and he's dead. You know, what about justice for him? And I know that, you know, there's the other side of the coin, which is, well, he was the one breaking into the house and I get that. But now that we know the whole story, we know, well, not the whole story, because we're still not sure about what actually happened in the house. But right. um, but we know most of the story and we know that most likely Richie was acting out. When I go back now and I think about this phase he was going through, breaking into people's houses and, you know, being a little kleptomaniac kind of thing, I'm sure that being molested by Chuck was a big part of that. I'm sure that was like a huge reason why this kid was unstable, you know, yeah. at 13, 14, 15 years old. He was stuck in something that he couldn't get out of. You know, It wasn't just a one-time thing. Oh, I experimented. Okay, no one needs to know about it, whatever. He was stuck. And um, that's cruel. Like Chuck was stuck in a in a cycle of the same kind of um, the same kind of abuse by Father Carroll. Right. We can say that he because it's it was part of the public record in that in the final court case because his lawyer got up and said that he was abused when he was in the Scouts. They just didn't name who it was that abused him. I'm we're just you know we're just thinking logically. Okay. We have the trans. You can make a safe assumption. Yeah, a safe assumption. Yeah, we have the transcript from yeah. uh, this first sentencing of from the Ritchie shooting when Father Carroll gets up and gives this speech, and he's speaking on behalf of Chuck and his Chuck's character, and he's saying that you know I was in the scouting troop with him in 1961. So Father Carroll places himself in that same scouting troop where Chuck was like the star right. scout. Remember all of that. And then in 1994, you have Chuck's lawyer saying, well, when he was in the Scouts, he was abused. So that doesn't mean that it's Father Carroll, but we can kind of... Father Carroll was eventually arrested himself. He was arrested earlier. In 1987. 87, right. yeah. So what happened with him was, uh, you know, he was running this mission for disadvantaged kids, you know, uh, same sort of thing Chuck was involved in. As a matter of fact, they might have even been part of the same network. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. It was a nonprofit thing, and um, he was working with even younger boys. I saw a picture of him, and some of the kids in there looked like they were, you know, around 10, 8, 9, 10 years old. And knowing, okay. you know, eventually what happened with this guy, I mean, it's, I, it's safe to assume he was molesting some of them. Um, well, some of these kids came forward, and there was suspicion and rumors, and eventually... Uh, there was an investigation and a lot of the kids actually, you know, even some of the parents like tried to defend him. Um, uh, there was some sort of rift between Father Carroll and the previous scoutmaster that there might have been some bad blood between them and that maybe all of this was part of getting back at Father Carroll for that. But ultimately, in the end, um, there was a couple kids who uh, who just were very graphic in what they described and their experience with him. And, and I'm sure that's what he was uh, prosecuted for. And so I, once again, I was not in Miami when this happened and um, I didn't find any of this about Father Carroll until I was doing research for the book. Actually, most of the Father Carroll stuff came while we were doing this, this podcast. It's like more recent. 
But yeah, I mean, when I found that, it was like, oh my goodness, you know, because uh, I found a Channel 4 news clip of him, a mugshot of him um, from 1987. And uh, it's just the, the footage of it, the, the video footage of it without the audio. But I'm sure if the audio were there, they would be saying Scoutmaster and Reverend Joseph Carroll you know, maybe Reverend. Yeah. yeah. Accused of. We still don't know about that yeah, one. Yeah. So he's in jail. I looked him up. Um, he went to jail for life as well. And uh, he's still alive. He's getting up there. I, th- I think he's close to 80 now. I, I don't, he's not in the same jail as Chuck, but uh, I mean, these guys, uh, at least they're where they belong. That's, that's all I can say about that. You told me that Leanna had encouraged you to reach out to Chuck in prison. Right. Um, She kept on saying to me, you have to talk to Chuck. You have to write him a letter. You have to um, see what he'll say. Worst case scenario, he won't answer you. Um, You know, that kind of thing. So it took me a while, but I eventually wrote out a letter and and it was very brief. It wasn't, I didn't get into too much detail. I just figured that if he responded positively, then, then I could get more into the details of, of what I want from him. You know, the sort of questions I had for him um, concerning the case, like the orange mm-hmm. tank top and stuff like that. But um, we never got that far. He, he wrote back to me um, and uh, it was just a very defensive, um, almost belligerent kind of, you know, attack on me and my character. And um, Right. So let me read some of this. And it's weird because he addresses it to Mr. and Mrs. Fragomeni. Right. What's with that? Yeah. So I made the mistake of including these stickers, you know, return address stickers that I got from Berkeley. Um, and, you know, it's just kind of lazy. You don't feel like writing a return address and you've got these stickers. You might as well just use them. And so um, I used one of them, but it had both of our names because Jennifer also went to Berkeley. So he correctly deduced that I was, you know, involved in academia, which, you know, I got the PhD and all of that. But he just also assumed that my wife is like in academia. And there's nowhere in the letter that I sent him where he would, he should come to the conclusion that this letter is being sent to him by both of us. Like there's no, there's nothing like that. So he takes it upon himself. And even on the, um, the letter, uh-huh. he, the, the address that he wrote, he wrote Mr. and Mrs. Fragomeni. And I think the reason why he did that was because he was hoping that my wife would get the letter and she would open it. Yeah. And then, you know, some of the accusations that he makes, you know, she would read that and then she would be shocked and then, Somehow he would like throw a wrench in our relationship. Okay. Every single thing that this guy writes in this letter is calculated for manipulation and for that kind of effect. Oh, well, yeah, we'll get to that part about the accusations and stuff that comes a little bit later. But uh, right, right. Yeah, it, it just keeps with his M.O. Yeah. I mean, like I said, the whole point of the letter, what the letter showed me was that this guy has not been reformed, that he's just as sick now as he was then. He's the same guy. If if he got out of prison now, he would just probably go right back to doing what he was doing before he got caught. 
you know? Yeah. And that's, you know, some people are just, you know, they are what they are. Okay, so the letter follows like this. Mr. and Mrs. Fragamani, your high chuck caught me by surprise. The thought that someone who knew Richie and associated with Tony that needs to write a book about Richie's tragedy is truly bizarre. Right. <laughs> okay, first of all, why does high chuck bother him so much? Well, because something I really had to stop and think about, which was how do I address this guy? So I figured, you know, after all these years, you know, I'm in my 50s, he's in his 70s. It would mm-hmm. just be like Mr. Falco. Um, I mean, I'm not going to say dear, but, you know, it's like <laughs> Mr. Falco, you know. But then I thought about it and it was like, well, th- he'd be more likely to recognize me as one of the kids from the neighborhood if I addressed him as Chuck, because that's what everyone called him. Um, and he thought that that was just what you just read. He's just sort of mm-hmm. like, you know, wow, that took me by surprise. I, you know, sort of like someone calling me Chuck again, like, for, like bringing back memories of the old days. The other thing to mention is that, you know, when he says the thought of someone who knew Richie, he puts new in quotations as if what he's saying is, oh, did you really know him? Um, and, and then he says, and associated with Tony as if like, that's bad. Like, in other words, right. he's questioning whether I really was one of the kids. You know, he's he's sort of uh, being somewhat guarded in the sense that like, oh, this could just be like some guy who stumbled, stumbled upon this story and did some research and now wants to write a book. And obviously, that's not the case. You know, this is something that I lived. And that's what I was trying to convey to him. That's why I addressed him as High Chuck. Mm-hmm. So, um and then he says, and then needs to write a book about Richie's tragedy. He's like, well, all of this is just too bizarre for me. It's, <laughs> yeah. it, it's like, okay. <laughs> so he goes on. Uh, have you and your wife considered what type of, and he says, psychic damage. Right, instead of psychological. <laughs> right. He meant psychological, but it's, you know, whatever. <laughs> what type of psychic damage and physical pain you will bring to the Brush family by resurrecting their trauma once more? Do you need the fame and glory, or is it to profiteer off the suffering of the family? Well, it's obvious that the first line, he's just trying to dismiss the whole thing out of hand. It's sort of like uh, he's kind of downplaying the whole importance of it and sort of like making fun of it and saying, like, why would you even want to do that? Like, that's just such a bizarre thing. Then he shifts into guilt land, where he's just saying, like, you know, and I'm sure that anyone who has done any sort of true crime book or story or, or anything like that is always thinking of if there's still living family members. Mm-hmm. You're always thinking of like how this will affect them. And it's always something that you have to consider because, you know, the best case scenario is you want to have their blessing. You know, you want to be able to say to them, look, I'm not doing this to make your brother look worse. If anything, I'm trying to sort of give him some sort of legacy. I'm trying to resurrect him a little bit so that people just don't forget him because he's already been forgotten now. And, you know, bringing him back to life in this story, even though he's not being brought back to life as a hero or even necessarily a good guy. He's just a kid. And he's a kid who had been abused by this monster. And of course, a kid at 13, 14 years old is going to act out. So, you know, that's something that everyone, any author, storyteller, you know, director, Mm -hmm. producer of a show or whatever, always thinks about, okay, well, what about the family? So it's not like I haven't thought about that. And, you know, we already talked about how I tried to reach out to Richie's sister. 
and stuff yeah. like that. So um, he doesn't know any of this. That's the bottom line. You know, we only met once in the park one day and that was it. So he doesn't really remember who I am. But at this point, he's just sort of throwing up a smokescreen, a generic sort of like a uh, smokescreen of guilt. Like, okay, you know, if I can't embarrass him out of writing this story, maybe I can guilt him out of writing this story. And like I said, each little mini paragraph is calculated for effect. He's definitely good at manipulating people. Um, you can see that. The next paragraph kind of continues on with the last one, actually. Mm-hmm. What is your motive after 39 years of life to come up with this need? Are you a Berkeley academic looking for a Pulitzer or Pulitzer? I don't, how do you say it? Yeah, either way. I, I don't know. Pulitzers. I've, I've heard it pronounced either way. Pulitzer. Yeah. I'll go with Pulitzer. Or are you and your wife looking to supplement your retirement with some sort of true crime extravaganza? I mean, as if there's like loads yeah. of cash in this. Exactly. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's more, it's just continuing the guilt thing, but yeah. then bringing money into it and trying to uh, attack the integrity of the story. That's what he's doing. He's basically trying to say that, oh, you're just doing this to get rich. You know, which obviously I'm not because I'm not rich and that's not my motivation. And it's not just a story that's focused on this crime and that's all we talk about. You know, it's, it's much more than that. So once again, he doesn't know this and, you, you know, he, why, how could he know it? He's just guessing, you know, but he's definitely being defensive and it's a very aggressive kind of defense. And uh-huh. the paragraph where it really, you know, like where he's really going for the jugular, he says, um, you said you lived a few doors down, down the street from Tony who provided you with info. If you have all the police reports, you should know that a recorded conversation between Tony and his lover, Willard, admit to buying drugs from Tony's friend, Mike. On the tapes, Tony brags about his discount on the drugs because Mike is one of Tony's Italian stallion lovers. <laughs> I can't help but to laugh, man. I know, it's funny. Oh, boy. My old law firm still have all those tapes that the DA's office taped. If you are still in contact with Tony, ask him about those tapes. So, first of all, this is the epitome of sort of grasping at straws, right? Because there's just about three things in here that don't really add up at all. And he's just sort of blindly throwing punches, you know, a couple jabs and like a a knockout punch. But because I did in the letter I sent him, I did say I was good friends with Tony. He lived a few doors down from me. And I also told him that I had all the files from the case. um, And I said to him that what I would like to get from him is if we could establish a dialogue would be information that's not included in the files. And I also wanted him to know that, you know, I like I do know a lot about this case, and he seemed to get that. He seemed to understand that, but um, then he goes a little bit too far, and he says, "You know, well, if you have the police records, um, then you should know there's a recorded conversation." I didn't know there was a recorded conversation. I mean, there might be, but what I have is Tony's deposition, you know, and mm-hmm. maybe that's what he's referring to, unless there's a separate recording in addition to the deposition, which is long since gone. So that's possible. I'm sure the state of Florida doesn't have it, but he might be right. Maybe his old law firm might still have it. Then again, why would he have his law firm on retainer? Like, where would he get the money for that? And, 
you know, I'm sure, (laughs) like, I'm sure he's not still appealing his case after all of these years. Whatever appeals he had, I'm sure he lost. You know, he probably has some sort of representation, but he makes it sound like, oh, yes, you know, I still have, you know, um, I have an old law firm and a new law firm. And, you know, it's like, you know, okay, sure. I I don't know if I believe that. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much a lawyer's retainer fee is right now, but it's probably not cheap. Right, exactly. And, you know, the fact that he mentions Willard is kind of odd. I really don't remember Tony and Willard um, really hanging out much, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly uh, Jerry and Willard hung out a lot, right? Um, And so did uh, Richie. Richie, Jerry, and Willard. uh, Richie hung out with Willard a lot. So the three of them, you'd see them together all the time. And then you'd see Tony with Richie, but rarely would I ever see Tony just with Jerry or Tony just with Willard. It's probably not even true. The fact that he says that Tony and Willard were like involved in some sort of thing. And then, you know, the fact that he says that they said they got a discount on drugs. Well, that doesn't even make any sense because Tony never bought drugs from me. We just shared whatever we had. Like if I had some pot, I'd smoke it with him. If he had some pot, he'd smoke it with me. And that's pretty much it. Like we right. weren't you know. aside from the placidils thing at the park, which know. was a whole separate thing because I was, yeah, I was, you know, you weren't a dealer, right? I mean, I took a few, you know, just just to try them, and I gave a few of them to some of my friends because they wanted to check them out and then see if they were anything like quaaludes, you know, and they weren't. Right. All I'm saying is that I didn't have a reputation in the neighborhood as a drug dealer. I mean, that was literally the only time I ever sold something. You know, and it was only because, well, actually, that's not true because I did help Ralph sell some hash, but that was his hash and I was just helping him. Right. But you're just kind of wingmanning. Yeah. Him. For that one. Yeah. I was like kind of like yeah. his wingman. But the Placidils, that was the only time I ever really sold uh, sort of drugs on my own. So um, at this point in time where, you know, what Chuck's referring to, which is, you know, around 78, 79, mainly all we ever did was smoke pot and that was it. And I never sold any pot to Tony and he never sold any pot to me. You know, we, we would just, we would just try to find, we would even say like, how much money do you have? And it would be like, I got a couple bucks. And I was like, all right, I got a couple bucks. Maybe we can get a nickel bag or something like five, exactly. five. Joints. That's how it was done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I, and then of course the part about the Italian stallion is just like, well, look, you know, if I did have sexual relations with Tony after all of these years, I would just include it in the book. Like that would become part of the story because I don't, that doesn't matter to me. You know, it, there's no stigma anymore. And that just goes to show how out of touch he is. You know, he still thinks that yeah. if he exposes you for having like a gay relationship, that like that's something he can hold over you and control you with. So he's still trying to do that. And it's kind of, you know, it's in some ways it's sad, you know, because it shows that he's still sort of locked in, you know, the 1970s or something, you know. Um, but it also shows how sick he is. And um, and it's just funny that he says Italian stallion because, yeah, I'm Italian, but I, I'm i not like, a, you know, I don't look like uh, John Travolta or, you know, Sylvester Stallone or any of like the stereotypical swarthy Italian, you know, that's like <laughs> right. tall with the dark hair and the dark eyes. I mean, that's when someone says Italian stallion, that's that's what I'm thinking, you know, like like, um, you yeah. know, Rocky Balboa, you know. Um, right. But I'm not I'm like I look like, 
you know, northern Italian. So it doesn't even fit. It just, you know, anyway. So but, you know, it was it, when I first got the letter, I took that as it was kind of threatening. You know, I was like, wow, you know, like I wasn't really expecting him to be that aggressive and that mad and or I don't know, disgruntled or whatever, you know. Well, he continues, he says, you are the fourth person to have sent me a letter about a book since 1979. If you produce a nonfiction or true crime trash book, I will provide the Brush family with the use of my old and new law firms. I have nothing to lose. At 71 years old, I'm on my way out. I look forward to your reply. Yeah. Which, Signed, Carmine. Yeah, which is the funniest part to me of the letter is when he says, I look forward to your reply. And once again, I think that just shows that even though this is a very uh, aggressive, defensive sort of letter, um, it's still like he doesn't mind getting letters. You know, he's kind of a lonely person. And, you know, maybe he was expecting me to write back right away and say like, hey, man, what do you think? You know, like, and, and like we'd have some sort of shouting match going on, you know, between pen pals who like hate each other. Yeah. I don't really know what he was expecting, you know, with this. Like, if you want to know what's truly bizarre, Chuck, it's the fact that you ended this letter with, I look forward to your reply. Um, <laughs> you know, that's, it is really weird. That's yeah. bizarre, you know. But um, I think it's interesting that he thinks that he sort of puts himself on the same side as the Brush family. It's like he and the Brush family will come after me with everything they've got, you know? Mm. <laughs> it's just like, what? Like, since when are you, like, allied with them? They hate your guts. Like, they wouldn't want any help from you at all. They don't want to mm-hmm. know you even exist. So why? <laughs> You're trying to tell me that, like, I'm the bad guy. Like, as if, like... I. I somehow hurt Richie. You're the one who shot him, not me. And besides, this isn't about sensationalizing. This is about a a, a tragedy can happen all those years ago and how it affects everyone around the situation, you know, the ripple effects. And I'm not saying that I suffered as much as Richie's family. Of course I didn't. That's, That's his family, you know. But it did affect me and it affected me in a real way and in a way that I feel like I want to talk about it because it's part of my life. And that's it. That's, you know, to me, that's, that's what the story is about. It's more about me than it is about Richie or even Chuck or Tony. Um, even though they're the central players in this story, they're, they're, you know, if this were a movie, I'd be some sort of side guy. Like, you know, I wouldn't have that many lines or whatever, you know, but, but, um, but it's told from my perspective. Booby Trap is produced, written, and recorded by James Archer and Michael Fragamani. We'd like to thank the following people for their help and contributions in creating this episode. Dan Wool, Mark McCartney, Mr. Sonny Duval, The Big Wheel, Jazar, Catherine Plaisance, Liana Echeverry, and the team at the Apostrophe Podcast Company. But most of all, a very heartfelt thanks to you, our listeners. Stay tuned 
for a preview of Season 2 of the Miami Chronicles. At 2 a.m. on Halloween 1967, a well-known gangster in the greater Miami area entered the Harbor Lounge. He had been there countless times since it served as the bar to his favorite restaurant, a place for steak. He was there to discuss a conflict of interest concerning another member of their organization. Upon entering the foyer and noticing someone who was sitting at the bar, he mumbled, that bastard. Nonchalantly, he turned his back to the bar to hand in his jacket to the coat check. Suddenly, five gunshots rang out, and he fell dead to the floor. Welcome to Killing Paradise, Season 2 of the Miami Chronicles, coming early next year. Do you want to know more about vampires, werewolves, zombies, and man-made monsters? Would you like to know more about the classic Universal Monster movies responsible for creating the entire horror genre? Then listen to our podcast, Let's Talk Monsters. Where we discuss everything monsters. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts.